Well, it is true that empty seats at a church is not a good thing. It's often not an encouraging thing, but as our elder Bob shared, there are 10 empty seats this morning, and they're empty for a very good reason, uh, because 10 of our members are overseas ministering the gospel, either in Kazakhstan or in Ireland. And next month, nine more will be leaving to minister at the Republic of Czech, Czech Republic. Well, let me just uh, just give you a report from one of our empty seaters. Uh, she wrote a few days ago. Uh, let me just read to you what she had shared with us. She says, We've already had several opportunities to share the gospel. Pastor Marcus preached the gospel while we were in a taxi bus. It is the size of our minivans, but they cram in about 25 to 30 persons. Reuben sat on men's lap. We'll talk to them about that when they get back. (laughs) And Marcus squatted on the floor. Marcus began to share the gospel. One of the ladies on the bus got really angry, but Marcus kept on going. After this lady left the bus, several of us grabbed some people and we shared the gospel. They drive like mad people over here. They have no regard for pedestrians or traffic lanes. At times, we feared for our lives. Elaine said that we should share the gospel like these cab drivers drive, with no fear. I said I agree. Uh, We met several people from Salvation Way Church. They were very gracious. We also went to the Bible Institute. We met Oleg, the institute director. He was awesome. He was the one who was taken by the KGB in Ukraine to the woods, put a gun to his head, and told him to recant his faith and tell them the names of fellow church members, and Oleg told, told me, and I'm sure told them, he had no fear. He was ready to die for his faith. Um, he, Oleg loved having us, and the entire team loved hearing all of his stories. Today was our first day of evangelism. We went to a huge park and walked around with translators sharing the gospel. You can't believe the number of people at the park. They just sit and do nothing. And many of them are homeless. The first guy I shared with, Sultan, asked me what would happen if he killed himself. He had been contemplating suicide that day. Several of us got to share with him and he even came to lunch with us. Pray that he will come to church tomorrow. On the way home, we got stopped by some crooked cops who wanted money. They asked for our passport. We had left it back at our apartment. Pastor Bahajan talked to the cops, and the cops wanted them, to, wanted them to come to the police station with them. But because the station was closed, it was Saturday, they would have to spend the night. Marcus said that they would go unless it would mean the harm to the sisters in any way. He was unwilling to pay them money, except if it would cause sisters harm. Well, praise be to God, Marcus and Pastor Bahadshan shared the gospel with the cops, while the rest of us waited and prayed, and the cops let us go. These are her words. It was awesome. Bring it on, baby! Exclamation point. She says, I've been very encouraged by the team. Marcus is on fire for the Lord. Even though he speaks no Russian, he shares wherever he can. People think that we are Kazakhs. They talk to us. And Marcus jumps in with the gospel. It's awesome. We are kind of like bait. Stephanie and Elaine have been encouragement to me. And we spent yesterday with local children preaching the gospel. Even though we've only been here a few days, God has done above and beyond what we could ever have expected. 
We are excited to see what God will do in the next two weeks. It's seriously uncharted territory here. Please pray for us, for we are diligently praying for Cornerstone. Oh, praise God. What a wonderful report from one of our team members in Kazakhstan. It is our prayer that in the future there will be more empty seats in Cornerstone uh, because they are serving overseas, short-term missions, and we pray that there will be some permanent empty seats at Cornerstone. That several of you, God will move in your hearts to commit long-term, one, two, five, ten years of your lives to spreading the gospel overseas. Well, two weeks ago we studied with much affection um, John 13, 1 through 20. And I know that many of you, as I was, very moved by the description of John of Christ on his hands and his feet as a servant washed in the feet of his disciples. Well, from that height, that glorious picture of our Lord, we go to the depths, we go to the valley, and we see the, the depths of man's hypocrisy and duplicity, uh, the depravity of man. We see it clearly in the very next passage in John 13, 21 through 32. And I have to say that I have not looked forward to studying John 13, 21 through 32. Um, if it was up to me, if I was not committed to expository preaching, I could very well easily bypass this portion of Scripture because it is a painful study. The subject here is disturbing. This past week, it was difficult for my own heart just looking at Judas and studying this last scene between our Lord Jesus Christ and the false apostle Judas Iscariot. You think about that name. His name is synonymous with cowardice and disloyalty. The most notorious and universally scorned of all men is Judas Iscariot. He is known by many as simply the betrayer, the traitor. In every list of the twelve disciples found in the New Testament, his name is always last. And with his name comes the moniker, the traitor. In the last list, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, his name is removed, and his name is never mentioned again in the Bible. He is the most colossal failure in all of human history. He committed the most horrible, heinous act imaginable. He, he betrayed the holy, sinless, and most glorious Son of God. All four, 30 pieces of silver coins. His story is a painful revelation of the deep depravity that resides not just in Judas's heart, but sad to say, and if we're honest, we would, we would readily confess that this depravity resides in the heart of all men. It is within all of us. Judas spent three years with Jesus Christ, heard all his teachings, saw all his miracles, experienced firsthand the Lord's tender love and deep compassion, but his heart, instead of melting like butter before the hot day sun, his heart was like clay. It was hardening day after day. He squandered his many great privileges and remained in unbelief. In Dante's book about hell, Dante portrays Judas 
in the lowest level of hell. And in that level, there's only one other occupant. And that's Satan himself. Jesus himself said in John 6:70, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He's talking about Judas. His act of betraying Christ into the hands of the chief priests was the most vile and sinister act ever committed by human hands. And we know the testimony of Scripture that it was not an isolated act. It was not a poor decision. Judas had a very bad day and it could happen to everyone, anyone. He just made a poor decision. No. It was the culminating act of a warped and twisted man who has been who is enslaved to sin. Luke 6.16, in that list of the 12 disciples, describes Judas in this way. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Who became a traitor. A simple past tense verb in the middle voice. Meaning, um, it was a gradual process of betrayal. And he became a betrayer, a traitor, by himself. His own desires, his own lusts, caused within himself to that gradual decline into hardened sin when he apostatized. He turned against Christ and betrayed him. It tells us that apostasy never happens overnight. That denying the Lord happens gradually. It's incremental. It's a slippery slope. And so, though the act was accomplished in John 13, um, Judas's heart became cold and callous, began the slow road to apostasy years before. Now, we have to ask the question, what is, what was motivating Judas? What is the reason behind this evil deed, behind this evil man? You know, you go to Borders or Barnes and Noble and you'll find books abounding, books abound in studying and analyzing the mind and psyche of evil men throughout history. You'll find books on Hitler, books on Stalin, Idi Amin, or even localized evil men like um, Ted Bundy, and they'll interview the men themselves, read their writings, interview their family members, their neighbors, and they all try to give a coherent answer for their evil acts to explain away what was motivating such men. Well, what about Judas? What was his mindset, his motivation in betraying Christ? The scriptures highlight one key component of this sinful motivation. It is a very simple one. A sin of greed. Sin of greed. John chapter 12. This woman comes to Christ and she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume and she breaks it and lavishes it, anoints Christ for burial. A very expensive jar of perfume. And they all knew that that jar was worth a year's wages. And what did Judas say? Judas said, why did she do this? He condemned her act. He said, we could have sold this and given the money for the poor. Apostle John 
comments, well, Judah said this, not because he was compassionate towards the poor. Judah said this because he was the keeper of the money. He was the accountant of the, of the disciples. And he would steal from it at will. What motivated him to say this was greed. And we find out later that Judas agreed to betray Christ for a paltry sum of 30 silver pieces. You know, it's almost too easy, almost too simple, almost too plain. But the Bible says clearly that's what drove Judas to betray Christ. First Timothy 6.10 The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not evil. I've got money in my pocket right now. I've got money in my checking account. Money at home. Um, I use money every day. Money is not evil at all. Money is neutral. Apostle Paul says it is lust for money. Love of money is the core root of all kinds of evil. Matthew 13:22. What chokes that seed that is sown into our hearts? What causes a, a person who trusts in Christ, who seeks to follow Christ and love Him, but his faith wavers and is choked out? What causes that? Christ said, The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the seed and makes it unfruitful. Luke 16:13. No servant, Christ said, can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Christ said, it is an impossibility. You cannot serve both God and money. And I believe in that context, he was speaking to two groups of people. In Luke 16, he was speaking to the Pharisees. Luke 16:14 says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Christ was talking to the Pharisees and also he was talking to Judas. Judas, you cannot serve God and serve money. You cannot love both. You will love the one and hate the other. There is no peace or neutrality between these two objects. Judas' life, therefore, is a living illustration of the corruptible power of greed and the love of money. Judas lived out this idolatry. You know, ultimately, in a practical sense, Judas didn't hate Christ. You know, if you were to talk to Judas, he loved Christ, but he loved money more. And that's what led him to betray Christ. He loved money. He loved himself. He loved this world more than Christ led him to deny the Lord. Before we get into the text for this morning, got to ask this question, address this question. Was he a true Christian? Was Judas a true believer? 
Will we see Him in heaven? Well, three reasons that I believe, three convincing evidences that reveal that Judas was a foreigner to grace, that his heart was never touched by the love of Christ, never had true faith in Christ. First of all, his betrayal of Christ. His betrayal of Christ. Three years of hypocrisy culminated in the open betrayal in John 13. His open betrayal of Christ is just mere the uh, tip of the iceberg of hypocrisy. Up to this point, his hypocrisy was below the surface. No one saw it except for Christ. But his betrayal shows that he was not a true believer. He probably thought he was a believer. He was clearly self-deceived. He had justified, rationalized his hypocrisy to the point where he believed that he was a follower of Christ. In fact, for three years, day in and day out, he occupied himself with Jesus Christ. He saw the Lord's miracles, heard His words, even participated in ministry. God used him to declare God's Word. God used him through association for the work of Christ, God's kingdom. In all that time, no one ever questioned his faith. He, was, he had the same status as the other disciples. When Christ said, one of you will betray me, no one said, oh, it's Judas. Obvious. This guy's a hypocrite. Look at this guy. No doubt. No one said that. He was, I mean, somebody hand this guy the Best Actor Award, for Academy Award for Best Actor. I mean, this guy was three years, day in and day out, impeccable in his portrayal as a faithful disciple. Nobody doubted him. In fact, he was so trusted that they voted him the class treasurer. Right? Who should hold the money back? Judas. And a case can be made that next to Christ, John, Apostle John, disciple that Jesus loved, sat next to Christ. He was leaning on Christ. Peter sat next to John. Because Peter asked John, ask Jesus who it is. Remember they were fighting for that, those two coveted seats who would sit on the right and left? It's very plausible that Judas sat next to Jesus. That coveted spot. Why do we say this? Because a table of 13, a rather large table, Christ handed the morsel of bread to Judas. So he didn't say, hey Thomas, hand this to Judas. Right? He handed it directly to Judas. And he said, it is you. And no one else heard it. He was able to whisper into Judas's ear without anyone else hearing. So it's very possible that John and Judas were the closest to Christ. Height of hypocrisy. No one even thought it could possibly be, be Judas. John 6.64 When Christ said, One of you... Um, would betray me, Christ said, Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas did not have genuine faith in Christ. It was all external. It was all religion. It was all formality and ritual. But in his heart was like dead men's bones. His heart was dead in terms of faith. Pastor John MacArthur writes, quote, Judas is a prime example of a false believer who fell into absolute apostasy 
For three years he followed the Lord. He appeared to be one of them. Yet while the others were growing into apostles, Judas was quietly becoming a vile, calculating tool of Satan. Whatever his character seemed to be at the beginning, his faith was not real. He was unregenerate and his heart gradually hardened so that he became the treacherous man who sold the Savior for a fistful of coins. In the end, he was so prepared to do Satan's work that the devil himself possessed Judas. Quote. Second evidence that he was not a true believer is his subsequent response to Christ being arrested. His subsequent response. You know, you look at Peter and Judas, they, they pretty much, they both pretty much did the same thing. Judas betrayed Christ, but Peter denied Christ publicly, not only, not once, but three times. Well, what makes Peter a Christian, a true believer, and Judas a false Christian? It's their subsequent response. When Peter realized what he had done, what did he do? He went outside and he wept bitterly. He was sorrowful over his sins. And what did he do? He stayed with the disciples. And he met Christ. And when Christ asked him head on in John 21, Peter, do you love me? Peter, in all humility, fully realizing that he had denied the Lord three times, went against his word that he would die with the Lord. He says, Lord, you know all things. I'm humiliated here. I am not a man, but you know all things. You know I love you. That was Peter's confession. His subsequent response to his own sinfulness was one of faith. But what did Judas do? Judas, when he realized what he had done, he showed no conviction of sin. He showed no repentance, no confession of sin. Judas, consumed with despair, he left the temple and he hung himself committed suicide he said I will not accept Christ's payment for my sins I will not accept that in my pride I will pay for my own sins I will die for my own sins showing his utter pride showing that he was not a recipient of God's grace of God's unmerited favor third reason that Judas wasn't a true believer is the doctrine of the perseverance of saints. Perseverance of the saints. It is a biblical doctrine that salvation is forever. When someone is a true believer, God will preserve them. God will protect them. God will finish the work that He has started in the heart of a true Christian. They will persevere in grace in grace until the very end, even if they fall into grievous sins, even if they continue in sin for us for a time. The Bible is clear. The true believer will never abandon the faith completely. John six thirty nine. This is the will of God who sent me, that I shall lose none that He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Christ will lose none. 1 Corinthians 1.8 He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 
Apostle Paul says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you, the good work of salvation, that he will carry it until the end. God will see it through. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He will carry it through. Those who really believe in Him, truly trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, will persevere until the end. But Judas's life reveals that he was, no, he never believed in Christ. He was never a true disciple. In fact, he had all the marks of a false disciple. This is one of my great fears for the church today. That there are multitudes. That there are multitudes of Judases in the contemporary church. Men and women who are self-deceived. Thinking that peace, peace, all is well. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. And yet, before the Lord, they will hear Matthew 7.21. Never have I known you. Never. Ergon. These men and women will come to Christ. Lord, Lord, do we not do all these things? They will hear, Never have I known you. You are not my disciples. I am not your king. I am not your master. I think a great percentage of the church today are like Judas in terms of their false faith. They are friendly to Jesus. They like Jesus. They look like and talk like disciples. But they are not committed to Him in the heart. These are three convincing marks of false faith. Let me contrast that and there, with the marks of a real disciple, marks of true faith. Obviously, there are many marks, many fruits of a genuine disciple of Christ. Just out of lack of time, let me highlight to you just one mark of a true Christian. Just one mark of a true Christian. I hope that we would search our hearts and God would test our thoughts and we would see this mark in our, in our own lives. The one true mark is... Not the absence of sin, but a right response to sin. Christian sin. I sin every day. Christians are not marked by absolute holiness. Christians are marked by how they respond to their own sinfulness, how they respond to their own iniquities. True Christians will falter and even commit awful sins. But true Christians will repent. And we see this clearly illustrated in the life of King David. We read the psalm this morning. I asked Mike if we could sing Psalm 51. Because that rightly illustrates the heart of a true believer. Look at King David. He committed a horrible sin. Talk about hypocrisy. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband killed and for a whole year he led worship in the temple of God. For a whole year he hid this and acted pious, led public prayer, acted like everything was fine. And yet when Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells King David that you are the one that has committed an evil act before the sight of God, and God is angry at you, and God's judgment looms upon your, or your shoulders. How did David respond? David didn't respond. I'm, I'm king. How dare you talk to me in this way? 
Or who are you to rebuke me? Or who do you think you are to correct me? King David's response was one of humility, contrition, and brokenness. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Just look for a moment at the words of King David. When he was confronted, he went alone before the throne room of God. He prayed and he wrote down this prayer for us. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. He, th- he casts himself. He throws himself at the mercy of God. And he says, according to your unfailing love, God, I, I appeal to your love. I appeal to your mercy. According to your great compassion, the compassionate God that you are, you show love to those who are undeserving. You show mercy to those who do not merit mercy. And God, that is me. I deserve your wrath, your judgment, your condemnation. But you are a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of compassion. And it is to such a God that I call out to you, blot out my transgressions. And then he pleads, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He is not demanding it. He is begging for mercy. And he says, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He knows that, yes, he had sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he had murdered Uriah. But ultimately, the commands that were broken were God's command. Therefore, these sins were a direct affront against God who was holy. So he rightly acknowledges the offended party. It is God himself. Sin is not about how it hurts us, how it hurts our family, and how it hurts our friends, and we should repent because it hurts those that love us in this world. No. First and foremost, every sin is an offense to a holy God, and therefore God is right in His judgments. Then He goes on, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He says He was born in sin, and at His core being, He's a sinner. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Hyssop was a plant used by priests to clean lepers. David's saying, in my heart, I'm leprous. Outwardly, I look righteous. Outwardly, I look clean. But God, you know my heart. I'm a spiritual leper. Cleanse me with hyssop. You need to cleanse me or I cannot be clean. And then it says in verse 10, Create in me a pure heart of God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's genuine faith. That is genuine Christianity. It is being having sin still in our flesh failing and falling and even denying the Lord and when we see our sins and we see and hear of God's correction of our sins we humbly repent we humbly turn to Christ pleading for restoration sad to say we don't see any of that in Judas Judas was so close to Christ so close to truth, so close to salvation, 
Yet, instead of repenting of his sins, he held on to his hypocrisy. He held on to his unbelief. He is a supreme false disciple who was masquerading. When the mask came off, he would not budge. Let's go to the text and look at the major portions of this painful section. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This expression, troubled in spirit, is found only in the Gospel of John. It is, John says three times of Jesus being troubled in his spirit. First time, John 11.33 when Jesus saw Martha and Mary grieving at the burial site of Lazarus. John 12, we studied that when Christ was grieved over the prospect of incurring the judgment of God on the cross. And it is here in John 13:21 again, our Lord is greatly distressed. Our Lord was a man of sorrows. His sorrow and grief was culminated at the cross. But his whole life, he was sorrowful. Whole life he was grieved. And what caused him grief here? It was not at the betrayal itself. It was not at the surprise of the betrayal. Because for Christ, it was not a surprise. Christ knew from the beginning Judas would betray him. Jesus knew fully Judas' heart. He was troubled that someone that he loved so much would betray him. Someone that was so close to him. Someone that was dear to his heart would betray him. That caused him distress. Psalm 55, verse 4 and 5, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Why? Verse 12, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. This cause in Christ great sorrow, great distress. And it's with that pathos, with that emotion, Christ says these words, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, the disciples looked at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. This points to sheer excellence of Judas' hypocrisy, but also to the love of Christ. It tells us that for three years, he never showed favoritism. You know, he didn't, Jesus didn't do a shoddy job when he washed Judas' feet. Right? He didn't, like, wink his eyes, you know, when he was talking to Judas. He loved them all the same. He was compassionate, merciful, kind to each and every one of them. So much so, that they couldn't possibly think, not possibly know, which one was a betrayer 
even Judas. Matthew 26, the parallel passage says that when Christ announced the twelve that one of them should betray him, every one of them were exceedingly sorrowful and they went to Christ. This is awesome. I mean, this is, every one of them said, Lord, is it I? They did not say, it's not me. They didn't go and say, Jesus, I'll help you figure out who it is. They each went and said, Oh, is it me? Am I the betrayer? Am I the one that's self-deceived? That's a right mindset, isn't it? The prideful man says, definitely not me. There are traitors in this room, but not me. I love Christ so much that I would never do this. A humble heart says, you know, I am, I can be self-deceived. I can be blind, so blind to my own sins that I could be the traitor and not know it. They all turned to Christ and said, is it me? Paul says that, 1 Corinthians 10:12. If you think you are standing firm, if you think you're okay, Paul says, be careful because you're the one most in danger of falling. You're the one most in danger of slipping. Matthew 26 amazing. They all go to Christ. Is it me? Is it me? And when Judas asked, is it me? Jesus whispers in his ear. No one else heard. Whispers, yes, it is you. Why would Christ do that? Christ was telling I know. There is still a time to repent. There is still an opportunity for you to turn. My love for you is still there. It is you. You don't have to go through with this. Repent. Judas was unwilling. Back to John 13.23. John was reclining on Jesus' chest. Peter was next to John. Peter asked John, Ask the Lord, Who is it? Jesus answered John, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the Simon, the son of Simon Iscariot. It was a mark of honor. To all the disciples, they thought Christ was honoring Judas for a, a guest of honor to give a portion of the meal to someone directly was a sign of honor. But to Christ, to John, and also Judas, it marked something completely different. At last, the Lord Jesus identifies the betrayer Our Lord rips that mask off of Judas, the mask that he's been seared, his face is seared to for three years. He rips it apart and reveals his true identity, that you are my traitor. Judas is unmoved, so unmoved, so intent that he is to betray Christ. Verse 27, that Satan enters into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Do quickly. Disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about. You know, oftentimes in previous feasts, Christ would send Judas on a mission to give money to the poor. In a time of celebration, Christ remembered the poor, so Judas would go out and hand their portion of their uh, offering to the poor. Or Judas would run special errands for Christ. So when Judas left, 
That's what they thought Judas was going to do. But Christ knew his intention. Verse 30, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The day of salvation closed for Judas. Divine mercy gave way to divine judgment. Judas was in essence handed over to Satan. Sin, sad to say, triumphed in Judas's heart. Satan moved in for good. Here is night. It will be night for the next three days as Christ is crucified and buried. Well, the next passage talks about God's glory. We'll address that next time together. But we know that man does not triumph. Sin does not triumph. Christ is victorious. Christ, when he faces his death on the cross, he doesn't consider that shame, consider it disgraceful. As he sees the cross, he says, now is the time for me to be glorified. I will finish the work that God has called me to do. I will die for the elect and they will be saved. He further says, now is the time for me to glorify God. To reveal to the world God's holiness, God's justice, God's righteousness. Now is the time through my cross for the world to see the love of God, the depth of God's love towards His people. But that is still future. Here it is still night. Judas has left to betray Christ. What about you this morning? What is the condition of your heart? There is an undeniable progression of man's heart when he hears the word of God. Undeniable. Your heart It's softer with God's word, melting before it, broken contrite, seeking to repent and trust in the Lord. Or undeniable progression of the heart towards being callous and being hardened, being made cold. What is the condition of your heart? Is there true faith? Do you truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you a recipient of God's unmerited grace upon your life or are you still a stranger to God's love and God's mercy? Are you wearing a mask this morning? I have no idea if you are or not. No, we have no idea. But God knows. A man's heart is clear before the Lord. He knows all things. He sees through our facade, sees through our outward appearance and knows our hearts. What will you say to him this morning? Will you follow Christ? Or will you follow Judas? Will you love money? Or will you love Christ? May God grant in the hearts that are cold to be warm this morning with the word of God. May God grant in hearts that are silent. May God ordain praise in such hearts. Praise and worship to His name. Our Heavenly Father, we are confronted with a very difficult portion of the Word of God. We are confronted with our own sinfulness as we 
Look upon the depravity that was in the heart of Judas. Lord, it is our prayer that each person's heart we would go before you and ask, is it me, Lord? Am I the one whose heart is far away, whose heart is filled with greed, idolatry, lust for this world instead of love for you? Is it me, Lord? Lord, it is our prayer that as we consider that you washed Judas' feet, that you loved him till the end, as we consider the beauty of Christ, Christ's death on the cross, and see your amazing love given towards undeserving sinners, Lord, it is our prayer you will melt many hearts this morning. And that many would turn from their greed and sin and turn to you and be saved. In Jesus' name we pray.